What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today on the show, we have a insane guest. Why? Because he's one of my favorite guitar players for years. When I was a kid, I grew up listening to Mahavishnu Orchestra in the car because my dad had that stuff blaring all the time. My dad was a huge fusion nut and whatnot and rock and all that other stuff. But he made sure that when I started playing guitar, I got hip to cats like John McLaughlin. He is my guest today. Super stoked about that. Incredible player. Mahavishnu Orchestra, Shakti, his own music, played with Miles Davis. Again, I keep saying this. I, I, I always bring up when anybody who I interview has played with Miles because it carries so much weight. Seriously. John McLaughlin is an incredible guitar player, incredible artist, musician, thinker, and I am so stoked to have him on my podcast today. So you know what? You probably already know who John McLaughlin is. You clicked on this podcast, so you know that he's here. I'm not going to talk anymore. Let's hit it. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album. DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there. And that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties. This person gets 25%. This person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out. Distro Kid. Let's get to it. I can see you have a, like a dark blue strat down there on the just to your left. Yeah, that's was right. That, was that what Jason has? You got one the same? So this is the one that I've played since I was a teenager. And now with Fender, we're just putting out, we just put out the Corey Wong signature Stratocaster. And that's the one that Jason has there. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, you got your own model. Cool. Yeah, it's incredible. What a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Very happy for you. Oh, well, thank you, man. That means a lot. Thanks. Oh, yeah, no, that's, it's, that's nice. I mean, that's kind of an honor, especially if they don't need, I mean, a strat is a strat with the reputation that has. And it's funny because uh, I, I have one anecdote with this, with the strat <clears throat> going back to the seventies when I, with the final Mahavishnu orchestra and the Jeff Beck band, and uh, we, we were touring America quite regularly. And during one of the tours, I had that double neck from Rex Bow with, you know, the life, the tree of life on the necks. Yeah. And somehow nobody was near that guitar in the band room. And it fell face down on the floor and sp- split the body. What? Yeah, I know. And uh, oh. and, the, and the bridges uh, went rammed into the wood. No, no, it was like, it was like, I, I felt I'd been in a car crash. Anyway, it was, it was just before the show. So Jeff, he was playing Les Pauls at that time. And he loaned me a Les Paul for the show. 
And at the end of the tour, uh, I bought him, uh, just as like a thank, I, I bought him a 68 white strap. And somehow, I wonder if that's got an effect of because since then, he seems to be playing a white strap all the time. You Amazing. Know, very, yeah, yeah, very sweet. That, I think that Strat's got a story too. I think he lost it or got stolen, but he it, he got it back, you know, which is nice, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I bet that double neck guitar was a little bit lighter on your back after it broke, huh? <laughs> a bit of lighter it was it was matchwood. I mean, it was ready for the bonfire. No, what I mean, I, no, but it was it was for me. It was a tragedy because I, I loved that instrument. It, it was that oh, was the first yeah. like custom. Uh, double neck, you know. I mean, it was yeah, it was a it was a monster on, on on your back. But once you get used to it, you know, sure. it's okay. I mean, even the Les Pauls, like the Les Paul, the old Les Paul customs, they're heavy. Oh yeah, they're heavy. Anyway, yeah, nice to see guitars behind you. You've got like a is that a white? No, that's a bass guitar. You've yeah, it's nice a, my jazz bass. And... There, nice. So did you bring Jeff back out on tour with you for your band or was he opening for you or what was? No, what no, was... no, no, but no, we, we opened to Jeff. Um, okay. uh, but that, at that time uh, we were in reduction mode and I think we were a quartet just like Jeff. Jeff yeah. had, he had pretty boy pretty on the drums, Wilbur Baskin on drums and uh, uh, Wilbur Baskin on bass and oh, who the keyboard player? I had Narada, uh, Narada Michael Waldman on drums, Ralph Armstrong on bass. I mean, that was from like they were still from the from the big 1973 uh, big uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah, and uh, keyboard player Stu Goldberg was on keyboard. But what was really cool was that because you know I've been a fan of Jeff since forever. And I, I mean, for me, he's like, he's maybe the greatest, the guitar player I, I really mm. love the most of, of my life. And at the end of the show, both bands would go on stage. Two drummers, two bass players, two keyboard players, and me and Jeff. And we just tear it up. Yeah. And it was, it was really, it was wonderful. That actually... Uh, gave me the idea when I did the, the big tour uh, in 2017 with Jimmy Herring. Oh, cool. That I, I, I used that, yeah, the same structure where Jeff would go on with, uh, what, was the, what was the name of his band? The Whip Band, something. Whiplash or something. And they'd do a set, and we go on and do a set with Fourth Dimension, <clears throat> about 45 minutes each. And then we both we all go on stage for the for the mass band, and that was that was it. That sounds incredible. We had some nights that were just amazing, amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But when the album came out, I mean, we did we did make an album, and I'm sure you got a copy, right, Corey? Right, right. I Corey? have the entirety of the <laughs> music of recorded musical history on my computer. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what. Now, now, all legal, all legal, right? Yes. Now, check this out. I want to, I want to come back to the Jimmy Herring thing. Now, speaking of the albums and your albums, now get this. 
What, the new one? I have your new album. The new one? Yes. Your, your, publicist, one. You about your publicist sent me your new album. But as far as albums okay. from across your entire catalog, my fir- the first time I was ever introduced to you, I was 12 years old. So my, I'm basically the only musician in my family. But my dad is like a music historian, music buff, right? Oh, lucky you. I have heard him say... And actually, I I talked to him this morning because I dropped my kids off at his house so I could have the house by myself here. Uh, my dad also has some memory care issues, so he's told me this story about 12 times this week, which I absolutely love. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. He told yeah, me... My mom. Yeah. My, my dad said, oh, make sure when you talk to John McLaughlin, because so he's been a fan of yours for years, he said... I saw John McLaughlin at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis in 1973, and he said, I've heard this story since I was 12, several, uh, hundreds of times I've heard this story, and he said, <laughs> and, and out of nowhere, he said he went to the concert by himself. None of his friends wanted to go. So my dad is at this concert by himself, and he's, he said, he said the, one of the most amazing things of his entire life was you did the concert, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you invited Carlos Santana to just come on stage and say hi to people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> apparently he was playing there the next night. He, I mean, he didn't play generally. He play, you know, when we meet, he played. We play together. He didn't play that night. He just said hi. I guess so. Yeah, that's the story <laughs> my dad tells. <laughs> I'm sure oh, he would have known. Nice. He would have said it he, uh, if he got on stage. But nice. I've I have listened to Mahavishnu Orchestra in my dad's Nissan Maxima since I was twelve years old. I've listened to um, Shakti since I was twelve years old, and I'm a huge fan of your music. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. That's that's, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now there's a lot of guitar players who like to be around other guitar players, and there's a lot of guitar players who just stick to themselves. I don't want any other guitar players around me. Now, I've looked at your catalog and I've looked at your history of just being around other guitar players, having stuff with Al Miola, Paco De Lucia, with Jimmy Herring, Jeff Beck, this stuff that you're talking about, even kind of being a mentor to Jimmy Herring. Can you tell me what the importance is to you as a guitar player to be around other guitar players? Well, they're playing my instrument, aren't they? I mean, that's my instrument they're playing. I want to hear what they're doing. I mean, I can steal something. <laughs> no, listen, we're all thieves. We all pick up from, from everybody. Uh, I, with Jimmy, it started because I somebody sent me a recording of one of my tunes, a Mahavishnu tune, Hope. I don't remember which album. In any event, he, he, he played... This tune, and then he did a solo over it. And at, and at, at the end of the tune, I said to myself, "No, why didn't I do a solo like that when I recorded it? Because <laughs> he killed it. He nailed it. No, I mean, just beautiful. And uh, from that point, I was a fan. And I finally got to meet him when I was on tour on a previous a tour prior to to us going out together. And uh, I was just. Uh, I, I mean, I introduced, I remember Chick Rick came up to one point because Chick and I, we've been associated since the 60s with Miles. But <clears throat> one, one particular band he was forming must be, must be 10 years ago. 
and he said, he said, John, he said, uh, you're busy, right? I said, yeah, I'm busy I'm right now. You know, I'm touring. He said, who's a good guitar player? And I said, and <laughs> I said why don't you call Jimmy? <laughs> uh, and he said, well, you know, he said, I'd never, he'd never heard him. And I said, I'm sure you can find something from YouTube. And, and he listened to Jimmy and he called me and said, this guy is killing. And he tried to get him in, in, in the band for that particular tour. Wow. But when Jimmy was out with, with um, No Panic or something, what's the name of the, that band again? Or what is it? It's not it's called Panic in the Middle of the Widespread Panic. Widespread Panic. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, even worse. Right. Widespread <laughs> <laughs> What did I say? No Panic? <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank okay, you. I, Thank I, I, have you. A, <laughs> I have a question. So being somebody who's been around a lot of legends and being somebody who's been looked up to by a lot of guitar players, I think it's important. My, my personal opinion is that it's important to have a mentor, have peers, and have people that you are a mentor to. What does it take to be a good mentor or a good teacher to a guitar player? Uh, I don't think a teacher can answer that question really well. I think the best people to answer question is the student. You say, mm. is he a good teacher? Is he a good mentor? I think it's a little, a little. Uh, I don't know. For the for the mentor to say, I'm a good mentor, but the teacher say, I'm a good teacher. Sure. He might think it, but it might not be true. I mean, he might be okay, but is he good? You have to ask the student. Well, from all of the teachers or mentors that you've had, what do you think has made them good mentors or teachers to you? Because they didn't care about being a mentor. They were just dedicated to their music. I mean, a thousand percent. Hmm. For me, that's the key because these are the people who inspire me by the dedication and by the, the development of the marvelous talent. Because... It's one thing to have a talent, but it's another thing to dedicate your life to the development of that talent, Corey, isn't it? Yeah. Because it is. It's a lifetime work. Here I am, how many years later? How long have I been playing guitar? Over 60 years? Yeah. That's a long time to play guitar. And I'm still learning every day. So, so you know, my life's been dedicated to that. And I think I need more than one lifetime. I think I would need three or four to really, really get it together, you know, but that's, <clears throat> that's, that's me. But as a mentor, I don't try to be a mentor. I just want to develop my art and myself as a human being and as an artist. That's really it. Because my experience, my heroes are, of course, Miles, with whom I had the great privilege of working with, Coltrane, uh, I would say p- a pianist like Bill Evans. But let's take someone like Jimmy Hendrix, who really turned the world on its ear as far as electric guitar is concerned. And I, know the, I had the great pleasure to, to meet him a couple of times. And I don't think Jimmy had the slightest thought of being a mentor to anybody or to be a teacher to anybody. All he wanted to do was get these deep feelings out of him. And did he ever? Because what he did on the guitar, I mean, with a wah-wah pedal and a Marshall stack, that's it. 
unbelievable. You just have to listen to, to Star Spangled Banner. A few minutes long, and, and this is a, a really great, in my opinion, a great work of art. It's unbelievable what Jimmy did. And Coltrane never thought about being a teacher. I don't think so. So the, the question is, is, for me, is unanswerable. I don't know if I could be a good teacher. I don't know if I could be a good mentor. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, I want to do a, I want to do a, a workshop for, for Paul, Paul Reed Smith's um, thing <clears throat> sometime in, in August. Yeah. So maybe if you tune in. You know, All right. I'm gonna and I'm gonna do a little kind of master class, and uh, and then you can decide if I'm a good <laughs> mentor or not. I might not be. I have put out. I have no. I have put out this DVD box set about 15, 16 years ago. That was actually very, very popular. It's actually still selling. It's a three DVD box set because it's nice. There's so much stuff on there. It's it's just how to improvise. And mm. but because let's let's take this position of learning because <clears throat> this was one of your direct questions. How do you really teach somebody? How do you teach somebody how to improvise, how to play a musical instrument? The only thing for me, the only answer I can come up with is I can show people how I do it and explain to a certain degree how I do it. Yeah. And 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 this was actually the title of the the of the box set, the educational box set was this is the way I do it. Because <laughs> I that's the only way I can play is, is play myself and play the way the way I see things. And then the hope if I'm clear enough and lucid enough, people can take stuff out of it and make it their own because that's all I've done all my life. You know, I mean, I'm listening to, to, to my, to my heroes, my, my mentors, if you will, and the ones who inspire me, I listen to them. And, and, and yeah, of course. Yeah. That's the way that that's, that's the way I, I, I can, I can do that. I get, or in my way. And it's, it's not something that you can put into words, is it? It's just when you get inspired, it's a state of awareness and that, and that you know you can articulate something that's essentially unsayable in words, but you can say it in music. Now, there's also another way of learning, which is by absorbing. And, you know, there's buying DVDs, taking classes, reading a book. That's one way to learn, of course, or lessons. Now, another would be to just be around people who are great. And just to be around people who are who have artistic vision, who have drive, who have something really compelling to say. Now, you've been around a lot of those people, like you've mentioned. You've been around, you played on tons of Miles Davis albums, Tony Williams, Chick Corea, like you're talking about. There's so many different people that you've played with. Are there things that you absorbed from your time with any of those people that you would have never been able to get from a book or a class? And uh, I, I not only absorb, I stole everything I could. <laughs> in a way. Yeah, we're all thieves in a way with poetic pretensions. Let me put it like that. But I'm, I, I, I've been stealing since, um, since before. I started on piano. 
when I was eight, you know, and I would listen to Carapaz and say, oh, wow, that's, that's really good. I like the way he does that, yeah. you know. And, and yeah, I tried to emulate him. And then from the guitar, the guitar was from like from 11 years old. And you hear the great players and, and you absorb that. You, you, you soak it up like a sponge. But if you have the opportunity to be around these great people, then this is one of the greatest privileges yeah. of your life. It's certainly one of the greatest privileges of my life because to be around someone like Miles Davis or Wayne Shorter or somebody like that, you see how, let's take Miles as a special example because he was a man leader and how he was able to get out of his musicians what they didn't even know they were capable of. He certainly did it to me, and I certainly do it to others. And and he he would have he would have a way of of in the studio. He was like a Zen master. I mean, this is a classic case. The very first album I made with him on uh, in the Silent Way. That uh, was a Joe Zawinul tune, and but I only got invited the night before by Miles to come on to the to, to the date. You know, which was the biggest surprise to me. I was there to play with Tony Williams. In any event, so so I arrive in the studio and Joe Zawinul sees me. He doesn't have a guitar part for his show, so he makes a photocopy of the piano part. So I'm playing the piano part. So we run the tune down. Miles doesn't like it. So I'm sweating blood already. <laughs> I'm nervous as anything. I mean, I mean I've, been, I've been his fan since I was 15 years old. Yeah. Boy. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, and there he is in front of me. And he turns around and he says, why don't you play it on the guitar? So, you know, it's like I have a piano score. <laughs> you know, so I said, uh, do you want the melody in the grave? Yeah, I want everything. And I said, it's, it's a piano part. You know, it's not a guitar part. And uh, is that a fact? You know, typical yeah. Miles. So I don't know what he wants from me. And all of a sudden, he, he sees it. He, maybe he uh, took, got compassionate and just said, um, one of his cryptic statements just said, why don't you play it like you don't know how to play the guitar? Mm. Get that? And so, and you know, and I hear the guy say, oh, we never heard that one before. So, and I'm thinking, what does he mean? You know, and each minute is like a month. You know, I'm sweating. And, <clears throat> but I have, I have no idea. So I said, okay, uh, it's do or die. And I, I just closed the, the, the score. <clears throat> I just started to play. No tempo, no chords, nothing, just the melody, you know, and the red light was on. And we got to the end. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but that was Miles. He knocked out of my head everything that I knew. And so I was just playing totally from instinct, mm. you know, which is what he loved. This is what he wanted to hear. He didn't want people to like play stuff that he knew that, that you know, that they might want to impress him with their chops or whatever. Yeah. And and that and that was his technique. And he, he was extremely successful at it because I've seen him do it many times, whether with Wayne or with with uh Jack Jeanette or with the bass players. Sometimes he you know this is a great thing. This is a blues in F. Don't play the F. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is this is Miles. And so you hang around these people long enough and you see how they're able to get out of the musicians. And this is, this is an art. And so by the time I started my mission, 
I've been I've been working with Miles for two years. Yeah. And and I've learned so much. So this is you know, I was but I was the luckiest guy in the world. I just had to be in the right place at the right time. But we try I try to be an inspiration. I don't know about being a mentor, but because I need inspiration, Corey. Yeah. To play music, I need inspiration. That's my lifeblood. Without inspiration, I'm just some dead. What am I going to play? I'm not inspired, you know? And so, and so inspiration, this is why I meditate. This is why I, I contemplate, you know, the existence of being and, and, and what am I doing in this infinite mysterious universe? And because these great questions of life, they're very, I find them very inspiring. So I try to be inspiring because I know that if somebody hears something and they find it inspiring, I've helped them. Yeah. That's the only way I can help anybody is mm. if I inspire them because I've been inspired and this is the greatest kind of present anybody ever gave me in music or in elsewhere to be just to be inspired. But since I'm a musician, that's what I look for all the time. It's that kind of thing. Just let me just I just just end it up. You know, I go to a concert and I'm sitting there, and all I want is to be blown away by the passion of that player, whoever, or the band, or whatever, or the beauty of it, or the or the even just the technical prowess that that that'll do it if you're not inspired. Sure. But I, I I'd rather have the I'd rather have the blood and guts with it. You know, yeah. I like to see blood on stage. <laughs> you know, and just have some passion, and and one and if they do that to me, I'm a happy guy. Yeah, you know, because I've 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 entered their. They've allowed me to enter their world, and and just be in their world. You know, their beautiful world because it's it's inspiring. You know, that's all I go for. So this is why for me, when I go on stage with the guys, I say, you know, this might be our last concert. Who knows? Because I've lost I've lost friends over the years. And we never know when we're going up. So let's let's give it the best, you know. You know what I'm saying? And in that, when you when you're ready to give it all up, is when you have the best chance of stuff happening, inspiration happening. Because mm. because it becomes more urgent if that's if that's the right word. Mm, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Is there a certain thing that you were trying to express with Mahavishnu Orchestra? And something that you were tr- trying to express with Shakti and that project, or were you just kind of doing the same thing under a different ensemble? Um, yeah, I think you. I think you hit the nail right on the head because because I'm just a musician, and the, and the music of, of Mahavishnu, the music of Shakti, definitely related. The big difference for me was to move from the electric guitar to the acoustic guitar. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the 1970s, you know, because I always, I know that was my first guitar. It was an acoustic guitar. I didn't even know what an electric guitar was at 11 years old. And, and so I grew up with the acoustic guitar and I've loved it. And I've gone backwards and forwards a, a few times with, between the electric guitar and acoustic guitar. But since Indian musicians are really essentially acoustic, you know, tabla or violin or singer, you know, yeah, use microphones, but no amps. So just it's in a way it's more intimate. The 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 interaction in the music. There's more intimacy, if I can put it like that. 
the other side of, of, of Shakti, and one of the reasons why I followed the, the, the last Mahavishnu Orchestra in order to, to, to just concentrate with, with the Shakti musicians was because they are so talented. They are so dedicated in their music and, and as a consequence, inspiring, but really challenging to Corey. I mean, those guys, when they start to play in, in like uh, up-tempo 15, are you going to hang with them? Or are you just going to fumble along, you know? Because, because you, if you don't know what you're doing, which is why I studied. I mean, I, long before Mahavishnu, I already started to study Indian music. I studied in flute in 1969, 1972. Already Mahavishnu was in. I became a Vena student of Dr. Ramanath from the Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Yeah. And, I, and, and so I, I studied theory. And then in 1974, I became an extracurricular student of, of Ravi Shankar. And, and he continued to teach me theory wow. because it's one thing to say to an indie musician, hey, let's just jam on like Dorian. And in a way, in a way, it's, it's much better if you learn the rules and regulations. Yeah. And, and then you really can, then you can play with them. And I learned more than I can possibly say from working. And I and still do to this day because Shakti in, in its current incarnation is still alive and well. It's yeah. just we haven't played since last January, uh, yeah. January 2020 because of COVID. Yeah. But these guys are such amazing musicians, Corey, is that I would recommend it to anybody. If you get have a chance to play with some Indian musicians, I mean, do a little homework and, yeah. uh, you know, all the wagas and the, and the rhythmical cycles. Yeah. And, and then go for it. Go for it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. I love that band. Absolutely love it. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about Distro Kid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Now, I have a question about scenes. And what I mean by that is I'll just... <clears throat> give a little context of kind of where I kind of think about things now with the band that I'm in and the scene that we get lumped into. So I'm part of a band called Wolfpack and we have a side project called Fearless Flyers. And there's a bunch of other kind of like random projects that we have outside of that. And then there's like Snarky Puppy and then a bunch of projects outside of that. Now, I, I think vision wise, we're probably fairly similar, but also very different but a lot of people will lump our groups together and then other groups as well of, uh, you know, whether it be some of our peers and friends, but sometimes things where it's like, oh, that's not really at all the same thing as what I do, but it gets lumped into that, like categorized, which is okay. Cause that's what we like to do. 
<laughs> as human People beings. We like, like to categorize. You're yes. Right. <laughs> so when I, you know, when I was in college, I was, you know, really into a lot of jazz, jazz fusion, R&B, funk, fusion, jazz, anything that had different, anything that was like jazz adjacent that was yeah. doing something unique. And well, mm-hmm. when I mean unique, I mean just different than, you know, swing jazz or whatever. So, you know, there was a lot of groups that got kind of in for for whatever reason lumped together, like Mahavishnu Orchestra, that era of Miles, that era of Tony Williams, Weather Report, Headhunters, Jeff Beck, Santana, even kind of if you're going in guitar mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Now, how much of that being put into one category is accurate and how much is not accurate? Can you give me a little context of that time period? I mean, basically, you're talking about the origins of, of uh, the jazz fusion music. Absolutely. Yes. And I think we have to go back really to this. For, as far as I'm concerned, we have to go back to the to the early 60s when... Uh, yeah, all I wanted to do since I was 15 was to be a, to be a jazz musician. But to make a living as a jazz musician at the best of times is not easy. Uh, then, of course, it was impossible because I wasn't I wasn't articulate enough. But uh, I I started to get gigs in, in R and B bands, mm-hmm. and but which is which I love to this day. I love because yeah. because you you take the R and B out of jazz and then. You know, you're taking some of the soul out. Yeah. And there's not a lot left except notes. But then by by the mid-60s, let's say with the advent of, 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 of acid, the acid days, it's, I mean, as far as the UK, I think it was pretty much the same in the US. Because uh, it was legal in those days, if you recall, acid. So we I don't all, recall. Acid was legal? Oh, absolutely. It wasn't wow. illegal. Huh? Yeah, I'm that, I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll go back to sixty-five years, sixty-six. Okay. Yeah. And you know, and and it's like because like you know, I heard the Beatles when they were like pre-acid days, you know, and it's like it's just another stupid pop band, you know. But you know, you hear the albums from from uh, Revolver. You know, and then uh, uh, Rubber like, Soul, like Abbey Road, you know, Sergeant Pepper. I mean, these things are like, well, I, I became a huge fan and I still am to this day. Yeah. Because we were all, we were all, I realized, because we were all tripping and, and you start to figure things out when you, when you start tripping. And, and we, we're, because we're all in the same boat, really, um, as humanity and as musicians. It's just a different genre. And the difference is, is how, how deeply do you feel what you're doing and how, how well you do it and how original it is. And, and, and from that, from that, from mid sixties on, the uh, Beatles became a kind of like a, quite an influence in my life because I found them very inspiring. The lyric, even today, I listen to the Beatles like, yeah, Sergeant Pepper. Beautiful, great songs. Incredible. You know, I'm not talking about getting oh, this nice guitar playing from George, but the, the concept, you know, yeah. it's beautiful. The, the songs, it's not baby, baby, uh, if I don't see you soon, I'm going to die. It was like meaningful. You know, she's leaving home. I mean, what a song. Beautiful. 
beautiful song, beautiful lyrics. And then, you know, and then along came James Brown, you know, and that was another revelation because, you know, prior to that, Motown, yeah, Motown was beautiful. Yeah. From the like 1962, 63, 64, little Stevie Wonder. I mean, great stuff. Then, but then shortly after that, and don't forget, I'm listening to Coltrane and Miles and, and all the, my jazz heroes yeah. during this, this period. But uh, especially the Hammond organ trios, Jimmy McGriff, Jimmy Smith, all had guitar players yeah. and good drummers. Brother Jack McDuff, George Benson playing with Brother Jack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Grant Green playing... Oh, an album with, with Larry Young on organ, whom I got the great honor to play with, with Tony Williams. So there's all of this stuff. And then along comes Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. 68. Okay. Another mind blower. So all of this stuff, R&B, rock and roll, funk in the 60s, it's all coming down in a big pot. Yep. And I'm trying to play jazz, and I and then Jimmy and the final analysis puts the icing on the cake with the, with that guitar sound. Yeah, and because by by this time I was disenchanted with the regular jazz guitar tone. It was sure. it was too classical in a way. Yeah, I, and I wanted to. I I was listening to Coltrane trying to play three notes at once, and, and this is what distortion does. You know, so Jimmy. Yeah had a great impact on me as far as I should add Eric Clapton too, because hmm. Eric and I, we go back to 1965 wow. with, the, with that whole scene, the blues thing and the R and B thing. Yeah. And he was playing with John Mayall and the blues breakers. So that whole, it was a very small scene. So we all got to hang together at that time. So by the time I got to, to New York in, in January, 69, all of this stuff is coming to a head. But it was coming to a head in New York. And Tony, that's why I got the call from Tony Williams. Tony, he wanted to leave that archetypal band of miles that he'd had for us six years, I think, yeah. or five years. And he wanted, Tony wanted to break out. And he wanted to break out with the Hammond Organ Trio with Larry Young, the great Larry Young, and uh, a guitar player. And, and he called me. He heard me from a, from a, just a tape that Jack DeJanet had made. So the thing is, Miles is going to make the break too. So from the from the time I passed it as a test of, of In the Silent Way, Miles was asking me to his house two, three times a week. And I was, bring your guitar. So, and I'd get there and, and he wouldn't play the trumpet, but he had a piano and he hit a chord and he say, what do you hear? You know, you hear a riff? Do you hear any, hear any of that walk at you? No. And so, and of course, you know, I just spent 10 years in the 60s playing R&B and funk and, you know, and so I, I'm like, yeah, you want to hear this? You know, so, so by that time we got to Bitches Brew, I knew him pretty well. That was like six, seven months later. And that, that said, even so, we went in the studio, I could see the Miles didn't really know what he wanted but he really knew what he didn't want. Ah. And he didn't want to repeat himself and he didn't want to hear anything that had been done before. He was he was looking for and he got it. I mean, look at that. Oh yeah. Bitches broke. Platinum album. I mean, amazing how what happened with that. 
You yeah, know, and I was incredible. just lucky to be part of it, Corey. But I think he he kind of coalesced everything together because he was in that position. I mean, he was a titan in music as a yeah. musician. I mean, he he invented new forms while he was while he was alive. It was uh, amazing to work with him. Well, some of those different settings that you played in. It's a totally different approach and a totally different mindset on the guitar, different language, different different touch, different tones. Yeah. What, besides just hearing the music and just using your instinct on what's appropriate, how do you approach playing with so many different ensembles with so many different visions? Instinct, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, you have to follow your nose. You really have to follow your nose. You just have to. The thing is, to, to survive in the 60s, not only was I doing playing with R&B bands and occasional jazz gigs, you know, because I, work, I was working hard on my instrument every day. I was just, like, working hard. Uh, but, I, you know, I got, there was, there was, I did 18 months as a studio shark. Yeah. And that was when, when, you know, pop music was exploding. And even people like, but Bachrock and Diane Warwick were coming to, to London to do albums. And I, you know, and I, mm. I was in all the sessions. I did a film score with Bud Bachrock, but I was doing like pop records. Yeah. Rock records. I was doing every kind of record because that's how I was really surviving. So all of these, they all played a part. And in a way, they all came out subsequently in the 70s no but it, i think it, it needed somebody like like miles to trigger that yeah but you know i mean for example one time in the studio he said to everybody play so what not recording don't not, we're not going to record this just you know that tune so what it comes yeah. from the miles from now 1958 yeah, but to play so what you're not going to really play so what with with the kind of Jimi hendrix distortion are you you know, you, you gotta be, you gotta be, because it's what kind of notes are you playing? What's your phrasing? You know, yeah. so you, you, you adapt to the musical environment, but to, I know I played in so many different environments. You know, I was doing radio shows with different bands, even jazz groups, you know, and I wouldn't know what they were doing. I'd arrive at the studio. They say, there's a score, go. You know, and, and, and that's and, and, and so you just follow your nose, you follow the music, you hear what they're doing. How's the drummer doing? Can you hang with them? You know, how was the bass player? What about the keyboard player? How what are those chords he's playing? You know, are they doing something to you? So I grew up those times with hundreds of different experiences, musical experiences. Yeah. And all you can do is follow your nose, Corey. That's all you can do. And uh, and sometimes you miss and sometimes you hit, but after a while with experience, you, t- you start to trust you, your nose. Yeah. You know, anyway, I got a big nose, so I'm cool. <laughs> well, we've all played with people that are very interesting characters and uh, different personalities, some strong personalities, some quiet personalities. There's, we've both got a long list of people we've played with that, you know, we've got plenty of, of experience in that sort of thing. One person who's always fascinated me, absolutely fascinated me for so many reasons, is Jocko Pastorius. Can you talk about what your the? Can you talk a little bit about the trio of doom and your time playing with Jocko 
and how you approached like I'm I'm curious, you know, musically what it was like how you approached playing with Jocko, but then also what the offstage out of this recording studio relational stuff was like there. Well, it's just, it's, it's a tragic story, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost a Shakespearean tragedy, the life and death of Jocko Pistorius. I, I met Jocko because he came to meet me. I was, I don't know how he found out. There was a, was a rehearsal studio in, in New York called SIR Studios. And I used to rehearse all the time with the band. And I was rehearsing there. And one day, door opened and it walks Jocko. We're going back to, I would say, 1974, 75. Okay. Probably 75. And uh, I said, oh, hey, who are you? You know, it's just, I'm Jocko Pistorius. I'm the greatest bass player in the world, you know? I said, oh, I like the way you talk, you know. <laughs> uh, let's 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 play. And, and and so he borrowed Ralph Armstrong's bass, and Ra- Ralph is no slouch. Ralph is to this day great bass player, wonderful. So we start to play, and then he starts the solo, and I'm just this guy's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. And so we finished playing. I said, hey. If I didn't have such a great bass player in the band, I would hire you right now. I said, but I've got a great bass player. But I want to call somebody. And that evening, I called Tony Williams. Yeah. And I said, Tony, I heard a bass player today. You should hear this guy play. You got to hear him play. And they started to, to hang. But I think it was just a matter of months later that. Zawano heard him with Tony, and he fired Alfonso Johnson on the spot. Now that's that's called who is who's the place player with with yeah. the weather report. And I actually heard that Jocko used the same line on Zawano. Hi, my name is Jocko Pastorius. I'm the greatest bass player in the world. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, confident is not the word. <laughs> confident. He was flying on confidence, Jocko, with <laughs> justification. Sure, because. Because he was he was, he was like Jamie on bass guitar, radical, rad, and just an unbelievable talent. And so poor Alfonso got fired, and Jacko was in, and Jacko he was made for that band, yeah. And what he did. So time goes by, uh, and uh, nineteen now fast forward about nineteen seventy eight, and there was a there was a. Already, Jocko had been having problems. Uh, he, he was having problems with Warner Brothers uh, with a particular album. I know he signed for a ton of money. Um, one of the albums. I mean, he, it wasn't happening like they wanted it to. And then Jocko wanted to do a really, you know, extravagant, expensive, you know, spending a lot of money. And and he wasn't too happy with it. And and that's all I heard because because I didn't run into Jocko very often. I would see I would see Joe or Wayne more often. In any event, the 1978, I got a call from the U.S. State Department, and the, we're doing a Jazz Giants tour in Havana, Cuba. Um, would I would I like to to do a thing with Tony Williams and Jocko Pastorius? 
And, you know, the two, some of the two of those most beautiful musicians ever. You know, so of course, of course. So we started to rehearse and the rehearsals were absolutely astonishing. And we should have recorded those. I know Joni Mitchell came in because she, she was, I think she was hanging with, with, with uh, Jocko and, and we all got in, uh, invited to one of her sessions, which subsequently I, I heard later, and Tony and I had been <laughs> wiped out, and only Jocko was left on the album. In any event, that was nothing. So we we those rehearsals were amazing. So we flew to Havana, but when we started to play, we all had one tune each, and the tune I had was a kind of minor blues. And in the middle, in the middle of it, Jacko, Jacko just like go went to the front of the stage and, you know, and he starts playing this a, low A with the C sharp, you know, an a, yeah. a major triad. And just, you know, kind of going out on, on it, you know, and I, I, Tony and I looked at each other and it was like, you know, what, what is going on here with Jacko? We didn't really know. Uh, so it was not like, the rehearsals at all. We don't know to this day what what it was. Only I wasn't very happy with with Jaco, and I told him. Uh, Tony didn't wouldn't say a word. He was he he was the kind of guy that bottled up. Uh, I get a call. Finally, we go home back to New York, and I get a call a couple of weeks later from CBS. Would you like to come back in the studio with Tony and Jaco? And uh, because they had the tapes, because they were they were recording it live. Were live in Havana, and uh, you know, and they, they could see that it wasn't what it was supposed to be. So we went to the studio, and but it, it was very tense because Tony Tony wouldn't wouldn't speak to Jocko, <laughs> and uh, I didn't care because I I told Jocko uh, I'd give him I'd given him an earful in Havana because you know I was pissed coming off the stage, and I just said you know I told him. Anyway, and Tony didn't say anything. But in the studio, we started to play, but the tension was too much. So at one point, uh, Jaco says, um, so I think we could do that better. You know? And Tony, Tony flipped. He says, oh, better. Oh, really? Okay. okay. You know? And he had Jaco up against the wall. You know? And that's like and looking up at him saying, you know, like this. Wow. And I thought, oh, gee, you know. There's going to be some blood on the floor here. No, I wasn't worried. I was laughing because the, I, Tony's not going to do anything. But but except Tony went into the studio and destroyed his drums. <laughs> so I said, I'm saying to the engineer, I'll leave, record that, record it. <laughs> you know, record Tony destroying his drum set. <laughs> you know, Jacko was like, oh, man, you know, man. But – Actually, subsequently, if you had the, re- the the release of the of the remix that I did uh, a few years back, yeah, which was dedicated to to both widows, one of Jack and one of Tony, where I used a combination of what 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 was usable in the studio and what was usable in the in the uh, in Havana, you know, wow. but it was. Uh, I have such beautiful memories in spite of in spite of those crazy, crazy times we had in Havana and in, back in New York, because they were both beautiful people. And and I had such 
great times over the years because we I jammed with Jocko. I mean, many times in between seeing him go to Weather Report and, yeah. and then going off to Havana with him, you know. And I've got some really nice photos of us in Havana. So I really miss him. Like I miss Tony because they're almost, they're these kind of Shakespearean characters. They're, 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 they're so talented. They're gigantic talents. And yet they, they, they die young, you know. I mean, that's terrible. Just like Jimmy and a lot of other, a lot of other young, talented people. But Jaco, revolutionary, irreplaceable. I mean, he shook the baseball to his shoes, didn't he? Unreal. Just like Jimmy did on guitar. My last thing I want to ask about is your new album and what it's like to be creative over... You said you've been playing guitar for 60 years. What is it and how do you stay creatively charged for so many decades? And tell me a little bit about your new album. I've heard it. I've got, I got an advanced copy. Oh, good. Good. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 I live from minute to minute, Corey. Uh, <laughs> yesterday's gone. Tomorrow doesn't exist, you know. And, and I'm full of awe when I'm at my best. At my best, I'm full of awe and wonder at, at being alive and, and how amazing it is to be witness and to be alive in this universe and to see these amazing beings around me and this planet and the whole, the whole thing. I mean, what a mysterious thing to be is to exist in this universe. So I'm full of wonder. I, I, you know, I, I don't really have time to think about what I did yesterday or what I'm going to do tomorrow. I just... If I get the compulsion to play, I'll play. And generally, even though, I mean, I had two concerts last year and I've had one concert this year, but I play every day because I just love to play. Every time I play, it's it's like balm to my soul, if, that's, if you can get that. You're, you're a musician, you're a guitar player. You know what playing music does to you. It's like... It, you go into that special world where, yeah, even on a bad day, you're still in that beautiful world of music. What an honor to be able to enter that world of music and hear stuff that has no sound, if you hear it. Yeah. And what you're hearing is amazing. Sometimes, sometimes it's really crummy, you know, and they're the ones you throw into the trash. But, you know, when you, and you hear stuff in your head, it's like, wow, that's amazing. And so I don't, I don't even stop to think about how old I am or, or, or what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do tomorrow. Anyway, I don't even care. You know, because anyway, I hadn't played for eight months. I mean, I hadn't toured. All my tours were canceled. I, I, I had two gigs in January this year. So by October, I'm like, mm. and all of this stuff is starting to come out. So I say, I have to do something. And all I done yeah. after the after the, the lockdown in, in February last year was we would I was making with the fourth dimension, was uh, fundraisers for, for for musicians who were suffering. I did one with Carlos, uh, I did one with, with Shakti. We did a bunch, and that really helped me because I could see. Actually, if 
I set up a session and I can get people to, 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 to be free on the record. So every, you know, so I did, I made sessions, but with the score, I would tell all the musicians, whoever they were, I said, whatever you hear yeah. me playing there, don't do it like me. Do it like be free, be yourself, you know, and just go for whatever. And, and the result, I mean, you hear the result of the album, you've heard it. And I think what amazes me is the level of spirit and spontaneity that's on there. I mean, I, I'm really surprised. I don't expect anything from, from this album. It's just another painting, Corey, you know. So it, people will like it. They don't like it. You know, it's, it's uh, but for me, it's a document of how strong the spirit can be because without the spirit of these guys, there was all those different musicians and their talents. Because sometimes the session would come back so good, I'd redo my part. That's how, that's how good they were. You know what I mean? Because they just taken it, they just taken it up to another level. That's how it was made. And, and uh, hopefully I'll get to play personally with the next, next recording. But in the meantime, you know, I got to do what I got to do. I'm compulsive, Corey. Yeah. Well, this one turned out great. I love this album. It's so cool. Thank and you. I dig everything that you're doing. So uh, I got I to gotta come see you live as soon as you're getting back out on the road. And for anybody listening who hasn't checked out the new album, check it out. John, thank you so much for being with us. This really means a lot. This is, this is awesome. Oh, Corey, thank you. What a pleasure to talk to you. I hope uh, we get to meet even by Zoom some other time. I'd love that. You know, but I don't know why I'm going to record again. <laughs> maybe next year, maybe 2025. Yeah. We'll see. Thanks, man. Peace. Thank you. John McLaughlin in the flesh. That was fun. That was a great Zoom hang. You couldn't see it because you're listening, but it was really fun to talk to him. On Zoom, it made it. It felt like I felt like I was in person with him, except for I was in uh, cold Minnesota, and he looked like he was like somewhere uh, in the middle of France. It's insane. Anyways, thanks for listening. Guess what? Next week, surprise guest Carlos Santana. I'm just gonna leave that right there. Peace. <laughs>